Now let's turn in our Bibles to the third chapter of Paul, the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, which you will find on page 1173, I think, if you're using a church Bible. I want to read a few verses there, but first of all, let me uh, reread a few verses that have already been read in the service uh, this morning from the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. This is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus said to the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's prayer begins in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I wonder how many of you knew that today is Ascension Sunday. You can mentally raise your hand and congratulate yourself if you knew it was Ascension Sunday. And I learned it was Ascension Sunday when I opened the order of service this week and remembered that our minister, David Robertson, in the list of preaching he had given to me while he was away, had in very large letters on this date, Ascension Sunday. I didn't know that David was so into following through the Christian year, but uh, at that time I took it as a, a pretty clear message, Sinclair, it's Ascension Sunday, preach on the Ascension. And so if I misled you last Sunday morning by saying we would finish the passage we were looking at in John's Gospel 
Uh, let me begin today by apologizing uh, for uh, that lack of foresight. In Ephesians chapter 1, towards the end of the section we have just read, Paul's prayer ultimately focuses on the significance of the ascension. And you don't often hear prayers like this. You don't often hear people having their hearts enlarged to pray in these terms about the exaltation of Jesus Christ and therefore the corresponding power that is released in Christians because of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And perhaps the reason for that is that fairly frequently when we think about the work of Jesus Christ, we move fairly rapidly from his death and resurrection to his coming again in majesty and glory. And in between those two moments, we think, as it were, purely horizontally about the fact that after his resurrection and before his return, the church is left here in order for us to live the Christian life to the glory of God. And we don't so often ask the question, if the New Testament tells us about the finished work of Christ and his death and resurrection, and tells us about the coming work of Christ in his return and glory, what does it have to say about the present work of Jesus Christ? Remember how the author of the letter to the Hebrews speaks about the fact that Jesus appears three times. He appeared once on earth to deal with our sins. He will appear in the last day to wind up history. But the author of Hebrews, and this was very important to him as well as to the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews emphasizes that it's absolutely vital as Christians that we not only look backwards and forwards, but that we look upwards and ask the question, Lord Jesus, what are you doing now? What is your ministry now? And this is what the Apostle Paul directs his own prayers towards as he prays that these Ephesians will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know the hope to which God has called them, that they may know the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to in other words, the logic of what Paul is saying here is that if you are going to know these three blessings, the hope, the riches, and the power, there is something else you need to focus your attention on. And what he focuses his attention on and our attention on is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. And he deals with it in five stages. The first is a very familiar stage to us. These three blessings, the hope, the inheritance, the power, are to be found in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But you'll notice that he spends most of his time, most of his focus, 
not lingering on the resurrection of Jesus in the past, but on what followed the resurrection of Jesus. He focuses our attention on the ascension of Jesus, what happened after the apostles saw him go into heaven. And he is really praying that these Christians in Ephesus and other places that received this letter will so have their gaze fixed upon the present ministry of Jesus that this will give them hope, that this will make them feel rich, that this will enable them to be strong in a world in which they obviously felt profoundly weak. So what are the stages that follow the resurrection? Well, they are these. The Father seated His Son at His right hand in heavenly places. The Father exalted Him over all authority, power, dominion, and every name forevermore. The Father subdued everything under His feet, and the Father appointed Him as head over all things for the sake of the church. And what Paul is praying is that as the significance of these realities dawns upon us, then the hope of the gospel will be born in us in a new way. The sense of our rich inheritance in Christ will flood our souls, and in the midst of our weakness, we will know that there is a strength to be found in the resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, if you think again about the letter to the Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews places great emphasis on Christian believers fixing their gaze upon Jesus now not fixing their memories simply upon Jesus then or fixing their anticipation on Jesus in the future, but to look to Jesus now. And if we're going to look to Jesus now, Paul is praying that we will know what it is that Jesus is now doing. What does it mean that He's not only raised from the dead, but that he has ascended into heaven. What is it that he is doing invisibly is what Paul prays the eyes of our hearts will be illumined to see, to penetrate through the folds between time and eternity and grasp what he is doing for us here and now. And I think we can summarize what Paul is saying here in three ways. First of all, he's praying that we will understand that the Father has exalted His Son in glorious majesty. We often speak about Jesus' two states, His state of humiliation, His state of exaltation. It's what Paul speaks about in, in Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? That uh, he took himself, uh, our humanity, he took the form of a servant, he humbled himself to, to death, even death on a cross. He, he came down, 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 down. And then God raised him and exalted him and gave him this name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul is praying that we will see that, that God not only raised Jesus from the dead, but God has exalted the Lord Jesus, still wearing our humanity to his own right hand in majesty and glory. And for the apostles, that was a supremely important thing. I wonder if you noticed in the reading from Acts that the angels bore witness to this. They, they actually emphasize it. I think the NIV slightly overemphasizes it but it catches the nuance. This same Jesus is going to return again in glory. Now, why is that important? I think it's important because it seems to me often Christians hold the, the, the less than biblical idea that Jesus took our humanity for 33 years so he could die and rise in order to deal with our sins. And as far as Jesus is concerned, he's done everything he needs to do in our humanity. And so our view of Jesus' humanity is a wee bit like those booster rockets that they use in NASA. You know, the, the rocket goes up. The, the booster rockets take it into outer space, and then they, they fall down to earth. Why? Because they've fulfilled their function. There's no more need for them. But that's not the New Testament teaching about the humanity of the Lord Jesus. What the New Testament teaches us about the humanity of Jesus is that he united himself as Son of God to our humanity forevermore forevermore. He did something in the incarnation that he did not undo in the ascension. And why is that so important? Well, it's so important because, as again the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, 8, it's only if this is true that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's only if this is true that as Christians we read through the Gospels, we're able to say, Jesus is still like this. It's only because this is true that what we read in the Gospels is relevant to us. If this is not true, then what is said in the Gospels has no more relevance to us because this isn't the Jesus we have. He's changed. He's, as it were, dropped off his humanity. He's gone back, as it were, simply to being deity. And what the disciples were intended to understand as they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, taken up in the cloud, and as the angels helped them to understand was, it's the same Jesus you knew it's the same Jesus you handled and heard and saw and loved and trusted. He's not changed because he's gone back to glory. He is exactly the same Jesus. And apart from anything else, this teaches us how to read the Gospels, doesn't it? 
as we read what Jesus is like to these various people, we're able to say he's still like that. And he will be like that to me. Because yesterday, today, forever. Some of you remember being taught this in Sunday school. Yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is the same. But now he's exalted at the right hand of his Father in a glorious majesty. But he's still the same Jesus. You need to go and read the letter to the Hebrews again and again, and you see how this comes out over and over and over again. He's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he retains our humanity. And this is why he's such a wonderful Savior. Uh, This is why he is a, a dear friend. This is why God's people throughout the ages have known that when they look up to Jesus, exalted as he is in glory, he's not out of reach, he's not out of touch. But the one who is exalted in glorious majesty is still the same Jesus. But then the second thing that Paul wants to emphasize here in his prayer is not only that Jesus is exalted, he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. He is exalted as the incarnate Son in glorious majesty, but he is exalted in the second place as the Lord of all history. That's the point that he's making in his prayer. He is exalted, seated above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. He's echoing the 110th Psalm, isn't he? Which actually turns out to be the single most cited Psalm in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make all your enemies a stool for your feet. And this is what's echoing through here into Paul's prayer. Father, you have exalted our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the same today as he was yesterday in the days of his earthly ministry. But you have exalted him to be Lord of all history, so that everything would come under his dominion. That's why when Jesus was uh, exalted in his ascension, we're told that he, he disappeared into a cloud. That, that doesn't mean it was a Scottish day. Uh, and the apostles knew that. Some of them had seen Jesus disappear into a cloud before, hadn't they? When on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, something of his glory had broken through the, the folds of his humanity. And this, this cloud came down. And what was that cloud? Well, of course, it was, the, it was the same cloud that came down when the temple was dedicated. 
It was the same cloud that came down when Moses went into the tabernacle. It was the same cloud that came down when God's people were led through the Exodus. It was the cloud, the physical manifestation, the bright cloud that was like fire at nighttime that was the physical expression of the glory of the presence of God. And the message that they would all understood was Jesus has gone into the place of majesty. He's gone to the right hand of the Father. This is an expression that the Father has answered his prayer, glorify my name, Father, in order that you may fulfill your promise given to me in the second Psalm, Psalm 2 verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And this, of course, is why Jesus, almost Jesus' last words, it seems, to the apostles were these, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Didn't he always have all authority in heaven and on earth? From one point of view, yes. But it wasn't divine dominion he had come to restore. It was the dominion that Adam had lost that he came to restore. Remember how in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, Adam is given dominion over everything? Because his task is to bring in God's reign and rule over the whole world. And he sins against God. And instead of having dominion over everything, he becomes dust in the earth. And the Bible's view of our salvation involves the restoration of that dominion. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's why he says to to his apostles, the way this dominion is going to be restored is not by me promulgating more laws. Would to God our governments would understand this. The way in which this dominion, this restoration of humanity to what it was created to be will take place will be by the gospel that will transform people's hearts and lives. And this is what Jesus is doing now. He's enthroned in majesty by his heavenly Father in order that he may have dominion over all things and be the Lord of history. And the New Testament tells us this is exactly what he is. Uh, Although his ways are invisible to us, indeed, although his ways, as our forefathers used to say, are like the are like the, the, the mechanism of an old watch where wheels go in different directions in order that the watch may tell the right time. So it often seems in the providence of God that the wheels of God are not only grinding slowly but grinding in opposite directions. But what Paul wants us to see is that since he has been enthroned in majesty and has dominion over all authority, over all power, over all kingdom, he is working out his perfect will. He is working out his perfect purpose because he is indeed not only exalted in majesty, but he is 
Secondly, the Lord of history. But then there's a third thing I want you to notice. If we understand that Jesus being exalted in glorious majesty and being the same yesterday, today, and forever gives us hope, it lifts our hearts, it gives us assurance. He's the same. Then Jesus, in this sense, being Lord of history, gives us a sense of the riches of our inheritance. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus, because they will inherit the earth. Who's the meek? Jesus is the meek. And all those who belong to Jesus belong to the community of the meek. And they will eventually inherit the earth. Riches beyond number belong to Christian believers. It's not surprising the New Testament tells us, don't expect the world to recognize this. The world is blind to this. But you should not be blind to it. And then there's a third thing here. And perhaps for us it's the most comforting thing of all. He's exalted as God's Son and glorious majesty in our humanity. He's enthroned as the incarnate Son who's the Lord of all history and has all authority. And then Paul prays that we'll understand that the Father has appointed His incarnate Son as guardian of the church's destiny. And this is an amazing little expression he uses towards the end of his prayer. He says he has put all things under Jesus' feet and given him as head over all things to the church. In other words, he's saying the Lord of history governs all history with a particular group of people in view, his own people, the church. You know how we often quote Romans 8, 28, that everything works for good for those who love God? It carries an implication with it, doesn't it? That everything then doesn't necessarily work for good for those who don't love God. That's the implication. Actually, the implication is the only safe place to be in the universe is in the church. Because that's the one guarantee the Lord has given. My son will take care of his church. It's like the picture of Israel. The one safe place for Israel to be was in the land that God had promised to give them. And outside of that land, they were risking everything. And this, at the end of the day, is the message of the gospel, isn't it? Inside Christ, there is safety, there is security, there is hope, there is an inheritance, there's power to live. But what do you have outside of Christ? Oh, you've got outside of Christ as yourself. That's all you have. And you're three score years and ten. And you need to make up your own significance. And at the end of the day, you're just a lump of biological matter. That's the alternative. It's not an alternative people can face, actually. 
and people who, who spread that message do not face the message they spread. It's fine to say that in your technical manuals and in your scientific textbooks and in your laboratory or in your English literature class that there is no actual meaning out there. But as somebody very wisely said about the great Scottish philosopher David Hume, his philosophy was fine until the moment he stepped out the door of his study. And then he could never live in a way that was consistent with it. You ask people who, who tell you that we're just lumps of biology, that there's no meaning, Dare to tell your English literature professor who says texts don't have meaning why it is he gave you a C minus for your text? And he's going to have to say, because I make these exceptions to the great life principle I hold. You see, they don't work. And that's what the gospel was saying in the ancient world. Amidst philosophies, that are in so many ways like the philosophies that govern the mindset of our contemporary generation. There is a safe place to be in Jesus Christ among his people. You see the implications of that? I know the church messes up from time to time. But you know when the church is truly the church, it is the one safe place to be, isn't it? It's a safe place to be for young children. I know, I know all the stuff, but by and large that's true when the church is really the church. It's a safe place to be for the elderly because it's a place where the elderly are respected and honored and loved and looked to and cared for. It's a safe place for teenagers in a confusing world because there's a word here to give light on their paths. It's a safe place to be for young mothers and fathers who are raising families in a day when their contemporaries are all at sea. What book do we need to read? And it's all because our Lord Jesus Christ has been exalted in order to care for the church. We're the apple of his eye. He's always thinking about us. Says the author of Hebrews, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Can you imagine this fanciful scene in heaven? That the, you know how often a father says to his son, what are you doing? You imagine the father saying to his son, Jesus, what are you doing? Praying for my church father. Watching over my church father. Caring for my church, Father. This must have meant something to these Ephesians, don't you think? Crowded in by the legislation of Rome, intimidated by the great temple of Diana and all the lifestyle that went with the temple of Diana. We're, we're like back living in those days and we feel weak and our heads go down. And Paul is praying that God will be our glory and the lifter up of our heads so that we will see Jesus. Remember again how Hebrews puts it, we don't yet see everything under his feet. But we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. 
And that's enough for us because we know he's the same Jesus. This prayer reminds me of uh, Elisha's little prayer in 2 Kings chapter 6, isn't it? When, when his, his little servant boy goes out in the morning to get the milk and the rolls and he discovers the Syrian army is surrounding the whole place. And he runs back. He says, Master, we're done for. And Elisha takes him out and he says, Lord, open. Open the young man's eyes. And he sees beyond the visible to the invisible. The Lord of hosts with his mighty army surrounding them, keeping them safe, protecting them, leading them on. Shouldn't surprise us, I don't think, that our, the early fathers of the Christian church, uh, whenever they sang the 24th Psalm that we love to sing here at Communion, Psalm 24, 7 to 10, some of them would sing that psalm, and indeed all of the psalms, every single week of their lives. And when they came to those verses, they thought, what a picture of the ascension of Jesus this is, of the King of glory returning to heaven, and the angels of heaven answering his call to open up the gates and let him in. Who is this King of glory? And the answer coming back, he's the Lord of hosts, the Lord who has been strong and mighty in battle. And the angels of heaven opening up the gates in order to let the king of glory in. And we need to see this prayer answered in our own lives as well as made from our own hearts. We need to understand that the gap between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' coming again is not an empty gap. And that we don't just live our lives looking back and live our lives looking forward between the times. But we live our lives looking up. Upward I look and see him there. And I find stability. I find the riches of his grace. I find the strength of his word. So let's stand together for prayer today. And after we've prayed, Colin will come and we'll sing those words from the 24th Psalm, verses 7 to 10, the tune, St. George's Edinburgh. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are highly exalted above every throne and dominion, above every name that has been named heaven or on earth. You're way beyond the potentates of our world and of our time, far above presidents and kings, far above evil powers, far above the machinations of wicked men, far above fallen angels, far above the evil one, far above elect angels, far above seraphim and cherubim, far above archangels. And yet you are still the same Jesus, the Jesus who loved little children, the Jesus who healed lepers, the Jesus who made the lame walk, 
the Jesus who comforted the mourning, the Jesus who cared for the dying, the Jesus who suffered in Gethsemane and on Calvary and entered into the dark place of death and remained under its power during those many long hours. You're the same Jesus, risen, and you're the same Jesus exalted, and you're the same Jesus coming again, and you're the same Jesus today. And we look to you, and we sing to you. We thank you that you are ascended, but though ascended in an infinite majesty and glory, you care for us, each of us, for all of us together, in exactly the same way. And when you come again, the same Jesus, we know that we will recognize you, and we know that we look forward to being with you then, forever. Lift up our hearts, we pray, as we sing your praise. We ask it in your name. Amen.